Uh, here, this is Portocol New Orleans Part Two. Yeah, you know? this is this is Nicholas Cage <laughs> with a capital Nicholas Cage. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you live in San Diego, California. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. Yes, finally. Finally, we're recording. (laughs) And today we are going to be discussing uh, the movies Renfield, which just came out in theater. And for the streaming homework, we're going to review last year's uh, She Said, which we watched on Peacock. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'll say this at the beginning of the episode. Um, I I feel like, you know, it's worth a trigger warning. The movie She Said specifically is about uh, Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, so we will uh maybe tangentially have to discuss matters of sexual assault um so you know if those uh those might come up in our discussion of these movies fair enough okay the other thing i wanted to do at the top of the show uh we we've done this segment before where we had talked about different directors and their body of work and we trying to decide together what is their definitive movie oh fuck okay you're just springing this on me all right not necessarily their best movie or their or our mm-hmm. favorite movie but what is their definitive work like if you could only show somebody one thing to kind of get the entire idea of what they do yeah like in in a hundred years all of their movies are going to be tossed in a furnace except for one, which would it be? Right. Or what goes to the library of Congress. And if you mm-hmm. wanted to be less violent about it, um, <laughs> I mean, in a hundred years, we'll probably be the throwing movies in the furnace, but we'll be yes. light. We'll be lighting uh, celluloid to heat ourselves around the fire bins. Um, okay, so first on the list, I have David Fincher. Oh, hmm. What's his definitive movie? I think it's... This one's a little difficult because he's done a lot of great movies. Yeah. And he's, I... he's mastered a few different niches within, a, mm-hmm. you know, a genre too. And he I also mean, has his tropes that he returns to, so... You could kind of almost go with any of them, plus or minus a couple. Immediately, my mind jumps to Seven. I I think after Seven, he clearly refined his style a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the the one the first two that I thought of just when you say David Fincher, gut reaction. The first one was actually Fight Club, and then Seven. Uh. So to to me, I feel like I feel like his more raw stuff 
is a little bit more definitive uh, because his later stuff, I think, still has that. It just maybe has some of the the rivets smoothed out. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, he's visually very consistent, even as far back as Alien 3, which is a movie he doesn't want anyone to regard in terms of his body of work anymore. I agree uh, with him in that matter. Uh, well, I, I mean, that movie, but <laughs> if you watch, if you watch the movie on mute, um, you can still tell it's him. Like it's, it's it, visually it, one of his movies. Yeah. Uh, he had spent a lot of time, you know, before that in music videos, defining his visual aesthetic. So by the time he actually started making movies, he had had a pretty big catalog of videos and commercials, and he had been doing special effects work for ILM. So he was, you know, a student of the game long before he put his hat in. I'm, I think I'm that's actually, why he came so strong so early. I'm looking at his. IMDb right now, and he actually is directed like with a capital D less than I uh, than I might have thought. Right. So we've got Alien right. three. He's a little pickier about his his work, especially lately as he's getting older. I think he's done less work since the turn of the century, but yeah, it uh, seems like he's maybe gone um, just gotten more into producing than um, right because he's done Mindhunter and and House of Cards and that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I'm going to say for me, it's a toss up between Seven and Zodiac, which are kind of like the sister movies to each other. Yes. Um, I Seven is the young, angry, you know, mm. has something to prove director. And but it is it does everything he he does very well. But I think that Zodiac, in a way, it's like he's revisiting the same sort of genre material, but from a much more mature point of view and and has a lot more faith in his storytelling dynamics and less mm. there's less kind of like shock value uh in that movie i agree with everything you're saying i think i i mean i think that zodiac is probably the better movie um i i know i personally prefer it um I still think, though, that Seven is more definitive. Uh, yeah, I think it just it put such a stamp on it, it has such a signature to it. And the fact that he has stayed fairly consistent with that, uh, mm. you know, e even with when he reaches outside of the genre, like you can tell someone that the guy who directed the social network directed seven and they'd be like, Oh yeah, I get that. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it all kind of starts with seven. I think that's, I don't know for, I, yeah, I just think that is probably his definitive work. Yeah. I, I think I'm inclined to agree 
Um, the only the only reason why I might pick Zodiac above seven in, in terms of being more definitive is that it uh, it captures kind of both eras of his work because sure. it it does all the serial killer thriller stuff and mm-hmm. the procedural crime stuff that he can do really well that he started his career with. And then, um, but it has the maturity and it has uh, kind of a, a cleaner finish on it, like his later, less genre work, like Social well, Network or Benjamin Button, which I don't think anyone would pick as their either their favorite or his definitive, but I'll, it is I'll- a movie he made. I think maybe the case I'll make for Zodiac is that seven, seven sort of, and and it kind of kicked off this trend of this sort of post uh, silence of the lambs, you know, uh, serial killer thriller. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of seven copycats, um, which I think again, sort of speaks to seven as, as this definitive work. I think maybe the strongest argument for Zodiac is it breaks through that genre uh, and it doesn't have it's it's harder to replicate uh, than seven seemed to be, uh, you know, where there was a lot of like along came a spider and, and you know what I mean? Like there were just so many. Yeah. Seven was just sort of ingrained (laughs) in the pop culture DNA in a way that made a lot of movies feel very similar to it. And Zodiac, I think, is maybe maybe able to stand on its own a little bit more. But in inversely, maybe that's the better argument for seven. It ingrained itself into the pop culture DNA in a way that zodiac didn't i don't know it's this is a tricky one no i agree i mean a lot of people don't think of it this way anymore because it's since found its audience but um zodiac was kind of a flop it didn't do very well i believe it opened the same weekend as 300 and it got kind of blown out of the Mm -hmm. water Mm -hmm. um there were probably it, it was uh and towards the end of the year release so there was a lot of stuff that was in competition. It kind of got lost in the shuffle. Uh, everyone, you look at that cast now, and it's like incredibly stacked. But at the time, you know, Mark Ruffalo wasn't like the biggest name in the world. Um, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't a sure thing yet. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. That makes a huge difference. I think you know. <laughs> I think he maybe was coming they- back up. That was his. That was his. Yeah. You know. I think his his best era of his career was, um, you know, oh, yeah, the, somewhere like, between what was that movie, Gothica, um, like that through the first Iron Man, was sure. when he was doing a lot of interesting, cool stuff. Like, um, well, yeah, he, he had to be a lot more careful then. I mean, he, right, you know, and he was picking. He, a, he was he was working with a lot of cool directors on weird little movies, like Scanner Darkly and Good Night mm-hmm. and Good Luck and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'll go ahead and say seven with you because I think that that was the bigger moment in time for for a movie. Whereas yeah. there was a kind of a uh, delayed reaction to Zodiac. 
people are kind of coming to it now. Yeah, yeah. And and who knows, maybe in in another 10 years, uh, it, it will seem way more obvious because, you know, seven might just seem too dated. Uh, and Zodiac has, especially within like sort of film circles, I think definitely has found its audience a lot more. Um, so yeah. yeah, this, this might even be an answer that changes over time. It could. Although I, one of the things I think the strength with all of his movies is that they don't date. I mean, with the yeah. exception of alien three, um, some of the special effects don't look great. Um, I and mean, they look all right for the mid nineties, early nineties. I would have been like 92 or something like that. But I think one of the cool things about Seven is that it it takes that neo-noir aesthetic mm. and sort of places it outside of time. Yeah. Like, it looks um, contemporary, but everyone's still in long jackets well, I, I and, and like, fedoras. And, yeah, you know. I mean, I think the same for, for Fight Club. Like, it did, you know, like, yeah. I think he just, he has this kind of visual style that, and Fight Club has a lot more visual references to its era. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's you know, old cell phones and, uh, you know, people using phone booths and things that don't exist anymore. But yeah. – and, you know, the cars and the airplanes and everything is, is very 1999. But it still feels like a zeitgeist movie. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Moving on. Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez. So I think he's a hard one. He's a, mm-hmm. I think he's tricky because he he as a director has always been so versed in genre. Um and he's never really I don't think transcended that or really tried to. Like I think he's very comfortable uh just staying in his lane as it were i mean he'll play around in lots of different genres yeah but you know he like did kids movies and stuff but he he commits to the genre like one thousand percent yeah it it feels like everything he he does is sort of a genre study yeah like he he goes into every project with with the idea of I'm going to do a cartel movie or I'm going to do a action blockbuster. I'm going to do a film noir or whatever it is. Um, Or even with his kids movies, you know, he kind of goes in with the idea of like, I want to do the best version of this type of thing. Yeah. Or exploitation movies, horror movies, whatever. uh, I am. Again, I kind of just go with my immediate gut reaction when you say these, because that's, you know, if it's my gut reaction, why does, why is it sort of the first one that come to mind? And with this, I'm going to say from dusk till dawn. Uh, Interesting. Okay. And maybe, maybe it's because of the Tarantino association. Um, But for me, I think, he is probably most well known for that or for the spy kids movies, to be honest. 
Well, those, I, I mean, I those probably made the most money. I think the Spy Kids movies uh, collectively have made more money than anything he's he's made. Yeah, and and I think that I was a little too old to be sort of the target audience for those movies. I I, I feel like the generation just below ours uh, probably thinks of those movies very fondly. Like you know, I hear them come up a lot. I, I don't know. I which. don't, but I, I, really. I, I, I've never heard anyone talk about those movies. Oh, um, I actually hear them come up a lot. But it, again, it's usually people who are just like, you know, maybe five years younger than me, eight years younger than me or something like that. So I think that for kids movies, they, they were, you know, they definitely found their audience. Um, oh, yeah, they were big. And they were some of the earliest examples like the, the last few spy kids movies and shark boy and lava girl which is like spy kids adjacent mm-hmm. um were some of the earliest in the resurrection of 3d before yeah. avatar and before beowulf and some and some of those other ones like uh picked up on it he was he was championing the return of 3d and digital projection and digital uh cameras like he's always been a very tech forward director yeah i mean and and he was he's been involved uh, he still is you know he's been involved with like the mandalorian and the and the way they uh and uh book of boba fett and the way they use the um what's the big projection uh background thing called rear projection um, no no it's it's different uh the volume do you know about this? So it, it's not just rear projection, but it's like it, it's uh, will like fully encompass the set by 360 degrees over the top of the set. It's like a big dome and they can run backgrounds in real time uh, using Unreal Engine. So they have like the backgrounds pre-made uh, and it's how, you know, they are. It's like the only reason they've been able to successfully do these Star Wars series is because it's not green screen. Everything is happening in real time. So the actors see it. They can interact with these backgrounds. Um, uh, But he was a big champion in part of this technology as well. Um, So it's kind of like like, fancy rear projection. I mean, it's, it's the same concept. It's just updated. Yes, and uh, and way more refined. But it, yes, yeah. it is. It, it's the same principle. But yeah, like he's always been on that. Um, like with Sin City, I mean, he kind of low key changed the way movies were made with Sin City that nobody really talks about. Um, well, yeah, in the same way that nobody talks about Spy Kids uh, int- reintroducing a new generation to 3D. Yeah. Um, Nobody really talks about what he was doing with uh, color correction and uh, all of the trickery behind the visuals in in Sin City was directly used in those early Snyder movies like 300 and and, uh, Watchmen. Absolutely. Um, And and what's, what's interesting about him is even though he comes everything from this tech mind, it's not in that sort of James Cameron sort of spendthrift 
mentality of more is more. Of uh, we can yeah, let's do John it because Hammond, we can spare <laughs> yeah. no expense. Right. His idea is this is how we keep independent cinema alive: is creating yeah all of these new things that we can do quicker and cheaper and do mm-hmm. it from our garage rather than having to go on location and do all these things. Um, we're way outside the conversation. I agree with you actually with, with, uh, from dust till dawn. Um, yeah. I just, I feel like that was, I, I, you know, that was bigger than anything from like his mariachi trilogy, but yeah. it still has that sort of, uh, Southern Tex-Mex, for lack of a better word, quality. Sure. Um, but mixed with like the kind of grindhouse, Tarantino Exploitation stuff. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just feels like that is just kind of a, a, a stew of him bubbling over. Right. It has his sense of humor mm-hmm. and uh, Tom Zavini having a cameo in it, who's like clearly obviously a big inspiration to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think it it kind of does everything he does in a movie pretty well. I mean, with the exception of the 3D stuff and the digital stuff, because they hadn't got there yet. Yeah. Uh, but I think that it encompasses what he's interested in doing all in one movie. To the movie's detriment. I actually think the movie's kind of like a little schizophrenic. I, I know, honestly, I know I a lot of can... people love that that switch in the middle, and I've learned to love it. But it it's it's never been my favorite movie of his, largely because it just turns into this whole other thing in the middle of it. Um, I think a, a, a lot of his movies have that kind of quality, though, where like yeah, and, and I think that's what is kind of exciting about watching a Robert Rodriguez movie is it it has this unpredictability to it. It has, I think that's why it's a cool movie. It has this danger to it where it literally is go. It's two movies, you know? And I, I think that is, I, I agree with you that it's maybe not his best movie, I think, you know, maybe his best might be Sin City. I don't know, but that one's so, associated with the graphic novel that it's hard for me to even think of it as a Robert Rodriguez movie. Like it's just, he figured out how to make these panels come to life. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, aesthetically it shares similarities with what he's into, but yes, he's very much faithfully recreating Frank Miller's vision. I think it might be the most faithful uh, graphic novel movie to ever be made. Like it's frame for frame. I mean, pretty close, yeah. Um, and I, I at another point of time, I might have said uh, either El Mariachi or uh, Desperado, which mm-hmm. I think are tonally more consistent and probably better movies. But they've seemed to fallen out of favor with the general audience. I think people of a certain age, people our age or older, still think mm-hmm. fondly of those movies, but. People are I, I remember still the seeing... last time I watched Desperado, it, some stuff had I, – I think it kind of ages weirdly because it, it has a lot of these like sort of 90s action tropes. Um, well, sure, yeah. 
the I mean, yeah, but I I think it just I don't know. I think that one is just kind of aged in a strange way, sort of the opposite of the David Fincher thing we're talking about, right? Like everything sort of makes it feel more like that. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I I, I mean, I still think fondly of that whole mariachi trilogy. um, But I, I can kind of feel why those, maybe haven't kept up in the same way. Yeah. I And then maybe it's just a Tarantino connection or whatever, but people are still discovering from dusk till dawn. Like people still of younger generations will still find themselves. Yeah. Watching I mean, I remember time. when uh, my wife Ashley watched it, she actually watched it without me. Uh, she just watched it and, you know, her like her reaction to it was a lot of fun for me, even though I wasn't there when she saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's why I think th- those things that you were talking about that makes you think it's not it's it just sort of showcases how experimental he is and how he's not afraid to break storytelling conventions. And I think that makes him an exciting filmmaker, even if his movies aren't always the best. Um, I'm always interested to see what he's going to do. And I think it, it kind of starts there with from dusk till dawn. Okay. Yeah. I had a third one here, but let's go ahead and just move on to the reviews. Okay. You can cut this out, but I just want to know who the third one is for the sake of it. Oh, well, we'll bring back the segment. God damn it. I just want to know. <laughs> I'll give it to you in 30 seconds, Cassidy. I doubt that. Um, (laughs) Let's go ahead and discuss Renfield, which, like I said, just came out in theaters. We'll watch a trailer here and get into the review. I am Dracula. Renfield, you will make a very good assistant. I work for Dracula. What? You're like the guy that gets the villain's postmate. Let's see. I do other stuff too. Like what? Wash his cape? No, that's dry clean only. I attend to his needs, especially during daylight hours. You okay? No. Renfield. Is it yummy? Yes. Rated R, April 14. All right, now I wasn't aware of this until I was looking stuff up about it, but. Apparently, this is based on a comic book by Robert Kirkman. So I don't, I don't think it's based on a comic book, but I noticed he was a or story, an, an original idea. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes. Once I saw that Robert Kirkman was, you know, the story writer, I was like, God, this feels like such a Robert Kirkman idea. I mean, one of his first, like, big comic books was about a werewolf superhero. He did Marvel and Zombies, he, correct? That wasn't the one I was referring to. But, yes, he was involved in Marvel Zombies. Um, the one I, I think it was just called Wolfman. Um, but it was about a, a guy who could transform into a werewolf sort of at will. And, like, the big villain was uh, was a big vampire, you know. It just – it. it sort of has a, a lot of Robert Kirkman's DNA all over it. 
uh, for better and for worse. Okay. Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and just describe the uh, the premise? What what's going on in the movie, and then we'll we'll get get into some of our specifics. Yeah. Uh, so Rimfield is about uh, Rimfield, Dracula's servant, who after um, serving him for you know almost a century uh, and gaining these sort of supernatural powers from him. He he is realizing that he is being used and has no connection to Dracula other than this sort of supernatural entanglement and decides that, you know, he wants to rejoin just normal human society. And in doing that, you know, is sort of a messy breakup. And along the way, he kind of incurs Dracula's uh, wrath. Uh, he also makes friends with a cop played by Aquafina and runs afoul of these these gangs, uh, the Lobos gang, which is uh, led by uh, Ben Schwartz and his uh, scary mom. Right. Yes. There's two vamps in this movie. Yeah. Um, one of them more of the supernatural and Nicolas Cage plays Dracula. Yes. Yeah. Um, very much so. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, this is an old school Nicolas Cage unshackled gets to ham it up, chew it up, eat all the scenery Literally. kind of yeah. kind of performance. He's, you know, we've seen him kind of doing more subtle work lately and doing more tonally quiet introspective roles to sort of prove to the world that he can uh here this is you know protocol new orleans part two yeah this is this is nicholas cage with a capital nicholas cage yeah he is i always remember this story uh that the the coen brothers uh tell when they were talking about directing him for raising arizona Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting movie for him because everyone's huge in that movie but him. His role is to be the the quiet amongst a storm of wild characters. So mm-hmm. he's, it's, it's against his instincts as an actor. But they were talking about how they would always butt heads with him because they had to keep telling him to dial it down. But they said that ultimately it's better to have somebody that you have to turn down than to direct somebody to go up. Oh, yeah. So, I I mean, I have taken enough uh, acting classes and taught enough improv classes where, you know, one of the things you always hear is just push it. And if you're too big, which you won't be, I will pull you back. And almost never do you have to pull somebody back it's always like make this bigger make this more presentational make this uh, uh, you know it is so much harder to get an an actor to be big than to pull a, a big actor back like when you get some uh nicholas cage it's it's sort of a director's dream because it's like you know they will go there all you have <laughs> to do is push them in the right direction yeah, 
and then hopefully that you have enough uh, directorial instincts um, to know what you're capturing yes. and to and to uh, be able to talk actor enough to get them to listen to you. Well, and, and I think with someone like Nicolas Cage, I think uh, uh, at this point in his career, he is absolutely proven that he is a professional. Like he can give you Pig or he can give you Dracula and Renfield. And I think he is talented enough that he is aware of the difference. But I think it's like you said, it's what the director's vision is and, you know, are you able to convey that towards him? Yeah, and I think that um, this type of performance works for this movie. I think you yes. want to see him be big. You want to see him ham it up because you it is want a comedy. Him to literally, vamp. Yeah, it, it is a comedy. You're playing up to the ego of Dracula. You're playing up to what we know about like the other portrayals of Dracula, whether it be, um, you know, Bela Lugosi or what? Uh, uh, who played him in the hammer movies? Uh, uh, Christopher Lee. Yes. Um, and he's kind of doing a mix of both and then adding his Nicholas cage isms on top of it. Um, yeah, I think which... some of the best stuff in the movie mm -hmm. is at the very beginning, and uh, and you see it in the, a little bit in the the trailer when they recreate the 1930s Universal Todd Browning stuff. Okay, um, we are getting into some uh, very specific murkiness for me because yes, that is I think some of the best stuff of the movie, but. The movie doesn't fucking know it, right? And decides to overdub it with this obnoxious narration and sort of cut through it with this quick cut MTV editing. And my God, I just wanted to like live in that moment because it was so like his Bella Lugosi is so good, and the way they recreated it is so good. But the movie is at this point screaming at you all these different things. It opens with him in the uh, Abusers Anonymous where, you know, he's complaining about Dracula. And then it cuts to Dracula, like, fighting these vampire hunters. And then it does the, oh, hold on, let me go back and explain things. And it does this incredibly faithful recreation of the original Universal Dracula but it's all overdubbed and I, I just like I just wanted the movie to start with that to just like play out that scene and and like let it breathe. Oh, my God. Right. The movie is 90 minutes and it it's 90 minutes of plot. And that was my issue with it is that it, it doesn't really work all that well as a comedy because it's constantly pushing plot and there's all this stuff about this these rival gangs and aquafina and their sister and the fbi and their family dynamic and their like revenge thing with their dad and and then yeah. like getting her involved and you know i love aquafina she's great but the juice of the movie is renfield and nicholas cage and they get maybe six minutes together on screen yeah I 
Well, here, okay. I, <laughs> to go back to Aquafina, uh, uh, this is all I'll say. I normally love Aquafina. I feel like, I feel like she kind of can't hold up to what Nicolas Cage and Nicholas Holt, Nicholas Holt, two Nicholases. They're both kind of operating on a different level than pretty much everyone else in the movie. And I think part of that is is exactly what you're talking about, right? Like, that's the premise of the fucking movie is let's see. It's Rinfield fish out of water. And, yeah. And Dracula in this abusive modern relationship uh, for, you know, two characters that are very not modern. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, Aquafina, she's just kind of doing her thing. But I, I feel like she's kind of sleepwalking through this a little bit. Like, yeah. Well, I think the director, Chris McKay, and I think when they came to casting, particularly some of these more tertiary roles, there wasn't a lot of thought put into the chemistry that they would create. They mm-hmm. just wanted funny people. So they yeah. just kind of found people like, well, Aquafina is big right now. We know she can handle dialogue. Let's, let's throw her in. She'll be great. Um, I, I do like the actress, the the older actress who plays the mother in the gang. Um, yeah, uh, Shore. Oh God, Shore yeah, Ag, Shore Agdashlu. Sure, she's good. Um, I don't care at all about that plot, but she is good when she's on screen. Um, ben Schwartz is doing Ben Schwartz shtick. It's yeah, which is fine. Um, it, but uh, again, it, it's kind of how I feel about Aquafina, right? Like, he's eating up way too much screen time. I think Brandon Scott Jones, who plays the head of the of the uh, support group, he's really yeah. good. Yeah, and there's a reason why that stuff is mostly in the trailer is because it's the best stuff in the movie. So, to to go back a little bit, this movie opens with this kind of obnoxious intro, right? But the the stuff with the the black and white recreation is fun enough that I'm like okay it it didn't lose me but it's it's fine and then I feel like you know once the movie is a little more comfortable uh, just exploring this world and it creates this fun Joel Schumachery neon camp. But then, just as I'm starting to sort of accept that this is just like a silly Joel Schumacher superhero movie, gay superhero movie, it shifts gears again and and just becomes totally generic in the third act. Once I get into the movie, it just pulls the rug out from under it and decides, well, we're just going to phone the rest in. Like The whole second act, I think, is great with this like weird bar, the monster bar restaurant, this strange fucking serial killer heavy for the mob enforcer. Uh, Dracula's like throne of blood bags is all like, I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm finally into this. Right. And then once Aquafina gets involved and it becomes a sort of cop action thing, it's like just so generic. Yeah. I'm, there's something about the movie that in execution, you pulled Joel Schumacher, I guess. I, I don't even think it has that much intentionality. I felt like this this would have been something that would have been made in 2010. Like this feels like something 
that would have is targeting the the zombie land or kickass audience but yeah. not doing it that well it there's there's kind of a datedness to it that feels of a a muddy era of action movie that I don't think we need anymore. Like I don't, I don't understand well, why a movie like this has these scenes where everybody knows acrobatic kung fu. See, I don't understand why that makes the movie better. Okay, so that's kind of where we come back to Robert Kirkman. Um, like he's writing a Rinfield as he wrote a Rinfield as superhero story, which is. Which is fine. Like, I I accepted that pretty early on. Like, once we find out spiders give him heightened powers, I'm like, okay, right. this, is, this is a superhero movie. And that's fine because Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage are doing what we need for that. And I thought it was very Joel Schumacher-y. The, the neon lights, these, like, super campy, gay-coded characters. All of it works when we're talking about that specific chunk of the movie, the problem is there's all this other stuff that gets thrown into it that is just incredibly boring and not of this world. It's so frustrating, right? Like uh, uh, Ben Schwartz's character is set up as this sort of parallel to Rinfield, right? And with uh, his mother being, uh, you know, the head of this crime family were introduced to her in this fucking torture chamber. I thought all of this was going to come back to like them being like a werewolf family or she was like creating a Frankenstein or something because we're getting all of this like heightened superhero universal monster stuff. But then just no, it just doesn't thematically come back in any way. I, you know, and. and the frustrating thing for me as a viewer is it's it's obviously there. They just sort of throw everything away for the most boring choices. Yeah, I do think the movie's comic booky, but in a way that's not good. I, I actually think the movie could have used that less of that. And I understand that Kirkman's behind it. I understand that they're trying to make sort of a hybrid superhero slash horror comedy, but I think of all of those dials to turn down, it's the superhero one. Because yes. I think that's the everything that bugs me about the movie is there. Like well, I and, don't and like the, movie... the way the action is is directed. I don't like the way it's edited. I don't like the yeah. the uh fight choreography. I don't like anything about the the inner workings of the Louisiana mobs don't care about any of that. I want to see Renfield and I want to see Nicolas Cage and I want to see more of that dynamic. Now I understand they have to have something to do in the movie and you could play up Nicholas Holt's character trying to find himself in society. All of that stuff's really funny. And when, yeah. when he like buys all of his clothes at Macy's and paints his apartment and all of that stuff, that's, that's, that's the element of the movie that works and they're good enough at, in their roles that they mm -hmm. are barely holding this thing together, but everything else is just kind of loud and lot heavy and plotting and boring. I, and not nearly funny enough. 
Like everything that mm. every big laugh in the movie is in the trailer. Um, there's very little that surprised me other than the violence, which is in the service of these kung fu action scenes that I just, what are we doing? I, okay, I, I didn't mind the action, uh, because of the gore. And it, like, I, I did feel this element of splat stick. Like sure. there were, there were a few moments that, you know, even one, like one of the cops is named Ramey, like, like that, you, you know, it's not subtle, but for me that worked because the action was so over the top that, it, you know, I think there's a solid chunk of this movie that I, I was enjoying in like this, this sort of middle area. There's this turn that happens after Rinfield sort of loses his uh, support network where he, he it turns into this buddy cop movie with Aquafina, And that's when I'm out, like nothing really interesting happens after that point. And and up till then, I was enjoying it enough. I I mean, Nicolas Cage is so goddamn good uh, that for I the think tiny bit he's in the movie. Yeah, I think it's worth seeing for him. But I agree, like it's it's just frustrating that the movie couldn't just trust itself enough to be a character comedy. Yeah, I think there's some weaknesses in the writing. It seems like when something funny happens, it's kind of an accident. Like it's not because the writers are that clever. It's that Mm. the actor either can sell it or... Uh, just as, you know, one, uh, you know, a one to 25 laugh per joke ratio. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately it's fine. It's kind of forgettable. Some mm. people are going to enjoy it more than others. Um, I think the younger you are, it's going to play better. I think sure. if you're mm. between 15 to 25, this might be your jam, but I've just I've seen this and I've seen it better. Kickass did this and it was better. Mm-hmm. I think you know the first Kingsman movie did this, but it was better. Um, well, or I, even Zombieland kind of did this style a, a little bit better. Like there's or whatever uh, the best version of something like this might be something like Scott Pilgrim. Like there was this feels like a throwback to that era, but. 86 times removed. Um, well, it, it's just, to me, this is frustrating because I think there was something really special that could have happened. Right. Uh, you, you see the ingredients. Like, you, it has all the elements to work, including, you know, the great cast that they have. Mm-hmm. They're just not really given a lot to do other than constantly be in the service of all this plot. That's why the third act is so annoying is because after they've established the world, it's like, okay, well, now we got to pay off all of this stuff we've already set up. But then it doesn't even pay off stuff in the way that it should pay off. That's that's what's frustrating is like there was more uh, like keep this sort of heightened horror thing throughout, but it even kind of abandons the horror stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, two thirds of the way through, and then everything's set in the day, and like it just, 
it just literally feels like the movie kind of gives up on itself. And it's, it's a bummer because I think it has sauce. It just, it, it, it's just so heavy handed in its direction, its editing and its writing that the sauce couldn't come through all the way. Yeah. It's, it's ultimately sort of a mediocre, forgettable thing. And it could have, could have been better. Could have been special. It turned into something that was fine. It's it's fine. I the only reason I'm mad at it is because it could have been so much better. Agreed. Yeah, I enjoy uh, Nicholas Cage when he when he's in it, which is not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy Nicholas Holt looking like Gerard Way. Um, <laughs> there's elements here or there that are that work for me, but like I said, most of that's in the trailer. This is this is one of those situations where I wish it had been less like the the assignment going in. Like I wish that they kind of found what worked and focused in on that and and leave behind all of the comic booky stuff because I feel like that's where the movie falls apart. I give it a C plus. Uh, I was giving this a B minus, so I'm I'm right in the same ballpark as you. I I had a good enough time. Uh, you know, that I'm not mad at spending $6 on a Tuesday to see it. But, um, and, you know, I think if you catch it on TNT on a Sunday afternoon, it's good. It's fun enough. But, uh, the, the, I think the ultimate bummer of this to me is I can see the better movie within it and, you know, just give me all the footage and, you know, a week in an editing room. And I, I I know there's a better version of this and it it just, it bums me out. All right. Let's move on to our uh, streaming homework now. And we'll go ahead and watch the TV spot for she said, which was released last year, uh, but is now playing on Peacock. Why is sexual harassment so hard to address? We're from the New York Times. I believe you used to work for Harvey Weinstein. Are you scared of him? We all were. He'll have spies watching you now. Do you wish you hadn't signed up for this? Do you? Tell me about the payouts. What are the payouts, John? I want to speak out on behalf of the women who can't. This is all going to come out. She said, rated R, only in theaters November 18th. I guess I'll set this one up. She said is based on a book by the authors of the New York Times story that broke about the Harvey Weinstein scandal that begat the Me Too movement shortly thereafter or around the same time. Um, I, I think technically the Me Too hashtag event was first. Right, because that was 2019, and and I think the story broke shortly after. Oh well, n- I, no, I, I the uh, this is this is like 2016. There, I mean, you know, there was a lot of hashtags going on around that time, but I think the Me Too era really got going in earnest with the breaking of this story because yes. it was so big, and it. Uh, well, it was and, so and, systemic and it was such a uh it was such a powerful figure that was 
actually being called out. Right. You know, and part it, it of, was, a, of, a, of a very large industry. Yeah, it, it was beyond sort of a, a hashtag where, you know, which got a lot of stories out there. But this was a very specific story um, that, you know, there were there was evidence of wrongdoing and and people overlooking uh, and not only that, but a system set up to feed into that. It wasn't just that people were overlooking stuff. It, you know, the the whole way, you know, it turned out the, the sort of the way his uh, company operated was to facilitate this uh, sort of behavior. Right. So Zoe Kazan plays Jody Cantor and Carrie Mulgan plays uh, Megan Tui who are the authors of the original article and it plays out like a, even though it's based on a true story and it's about them trying to get an article published, it sort of plays out like a procedural thriller Mm -hmm. um, where they're looking for sources and they're trying to get people to go on the record and it goes all the way up to famous actresses and personal assistants and anybody who was working around Harvey Weinstein at that time and throughout the 90s and the peak period of Miramax. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're you know trying to get all of these people on the record and trying to build out a story uh, while at the same time they're hearing of uh, a competing story for The New Yorker uh, being written by Ronan Farrow. So there's that element to it as well, um, which I believe a version of that did come out. And I think he is somewhat credited as being sort of part and parcel to this breakthrough. But this mm-hmm. movie sort of focuses specifically on them and their uh, their story. And yeah, I mean, it, it's it's recent history and it's calling out the very industry that created the movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's ballsy because of that, or, you know, like it's, it, it, it has to, it has to address this systemic issue, but still do it in, you know, try to make a movie that's marketable and distributable, you know, without, it, it's interesting because of that, you know, because, Normally, uh, Hollywood loves stories about movies, but, you know, and this particular sort of genre of investigatory journalism, Hollywood loves that. But in this case, it's it's sort of turned back at itself, which I think is very interesting. It is. I'm a little conflicted about that. And it's one of the reasons why I didn't initially run out and see it mm-hmm. was it feels a little fresh still like we're still kind of seeing the fallout of this of sure. these events um not everything is shaken out completely uh and so i wasn't sure what their angle was going to be in the movie and i was initially worried and i think for the most part it does not do this but i was uh, i was initially worried that the movie was going to try and narrativize these events in a way that it saw fit before those pieces could totally come together. 
I'm not sure I I'm not sure I totally understand what you mean, but I I think I was worried that there would be kind of a tone deaf quality to the movie where it's like, okay, let's make a movie cynically about the Harvey Weinstein story because it's a big story and because there's dramatic potential there. And we know that we can garner awards attention and and then be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, look how great and feminist we all are. Um, I, you know, I okay. was worried I, that, I I, that the industry would try and use this as a band-aid over decades-long gotcha. is- yeah, yeah. issues. And it's even still a little hard for me because it would take way too much research to – to be able to come to any conclusion, but like how many people who worked on this movie were there and did know and were part of it. Sure. You know, yeah, it's I hard mean, to say because that is, a, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that is kind of, it is hard to say it. it, it and that's, that is a big part of the problem, right? Is this lack of uh, accountability is this, you know, how many people, how many, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who were like grips and techs and, and shit who worked at Miramax at the time who probably didn't know fuck all. You, you oh, know what sure. I mean? I mean, there's lots of people who worked much closer with Harvey Weinstein who swear they didn't know. Now, did they? I, you know, who knows? But well, I I I understand your concern a, a little bit more now. Uh, and I think to speak to the movie's credit. I think it is. I think it was smart to frame the story around the uh, investigation behind this specific story that broke. Right, like it's yeah. it's not. It doesn't try to go beyond beyond its time and make these sort of quality statements about stuff that, like you said, is still being figured out, is still being addressed. Um, but it's right. specifically about how the information broke. It's it's about how this story was put together um, that initially brought these things into light, right? Yeah, and it's also within the scope of what they knew at the time. Like yeah. it, it never tries to it never tries to um, broaden the scope of of the of the events to what we've maybe learned since or to what Ronan Farrow found outside of this or whatever, or other stories that were adjacent to it or came after it or whatever. Um, It, everything is within the scope of what these journalists found and what they were being told and what they were allowed to say. And because of that, I think it has, the movie has more of an objectivity to it, right? It, it feels more, it feels like it's trying to present uh, the facts. I mean, you know, yes, it is, it is still a movie. It is still done in, in a dramatic fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, I never felt like it was going beyond the scope of the story it was trying to tell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it would have been very easy or very tempting rather for the people involved to narrativize more than they do. And I think that they, they withhold that as much as possible. Now we do, 
there are some scenes here or there that, you know, whether or not they were based in something that really happened that, that, um, well, it's, it's still a movie. You still have to dramatize, you know, certain things like, right. And you still have to make characters ultimately. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't just, it can't just be the article. I mean, the, there is the article, there is the book. So yeah, we we're, we're given scenes that feel familiar to the genre territory we're in. So there is, I, I thought a lot about the movie, the one about the Catholic church spotlight. I mm-hmm. think that had a big influence on this, even going back further to was the, the Woodward and Bernstein one. Yeah. All the president's men. Yeah. 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 And I think that it, it it's very hyper aware that it is doing that type of movie, that it is a, a procedural thriller basically. Yeah. And a, that's how it plays because, you know, we go from these scenes of them, in New York to flying to LA to talk to so-and-so and and we're getting this information, but they're too afraid to talk, but then they give them another name. So they're able to follow that tale and Mm -hmm. see where that leads. And they're able to kind of piece this together slowly, but surely. And they're waiting for a couple shoes to drop on people who are on the fence of whether or not they want to, to go on the record. And Part of me really enjoys that that aspect of the movie, that it is, you know, just on a genre level, even if you didn't know anything about any of these events or weren't really following it or had any idea of like, you know, the machinations behind how movies get made or who these yeah. people even are outside of the big actresses. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it works. It, it's, it works dramatically. Yeah. Um, there's another part of me that is like, okay, but – is this icky? Like I, you know what I mean. Like are we that we're turning recent history into? I mean, I guess okay. at the time, all the president's men was probably about the same length of time away from the Nixon events. Also, also, but, if you think if you think about it like this, right? Yeah, uh, like if you go into it with the mindset of is this sort of exploiting? You know, a a a national tabloid story. I think, I think you could get that viewing of it, but I do think the movie goes to, to great lengths to try and avoid feeling exploitive. You know, if you think about it from the, the perspective of this is an important story that needs to be out there. It feel, it doesn't feel icky, right? Like it doesn't feel like if we're getting, this story of abuse and making it, we're dramatizing it. Uh, but if we're doing that respectfully, it is a story that should be told, you know, it, and hopefully a big part of the whole Me Too movement is hopefully by sharing these sort of broader traumas, some amount of change can come out of it, right? Uh so, you know, if somebody who sort of heard some details about the Weinstein stuff, but they, you know, they don't really know and they didn't read the article or, or whatever. I think it is good to have a, a movie that specifically tells tells the story of the system that allowed this abuse to happen and, you know, does that as respectfully as you can. Yeah, and I th- I think the utility I think the utility of the movie in that sense is effective. 
You know, the, the, even if somebody goes in just for, because they heard, oh, you know, this was up for awards or something, I guess I'll watch it. Yeah. Uh, I think they might, you know, come for the drama and then stay for the the facts, stay for the message. And yeah. I think that that stuff, that all plays. And and I do, I do think it, for the most part, doesn't feel like Hollywood apologizing for itself and then congratulating itself for apologizing, which is what I was worried it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that. I, I think I kind of had some of the same reservations. Like it's, it's not, it's not the story they're trying to tell. It's, it's how are they going to tell it? Right. You know, is it a way that's sort of self-congratulatory or is it a way that treats the subject matter with respect? Right. And the right amount of gravity. Uh, Maria Schrader directed it, and it uh, was adapted by Rebecca Lenkowitz, and I think done so pretty well. You know, mm-hmm. I I think it's about as good as you could hope for this to be, and I think it it, it makes some interesting choices. Or last week when we talked about Air, we talked a lot about like their choice to not show mm-hmm. Michael Jordan. Um, and so sort of play it through these third party figures. I think in the same way they, uh, Ashley Judd here playing herself, she's the only one who really steps, um, into the movie doing that. Um, and I think that's probably about as much of that as you could do without it really feeling weird. Like some sort of passion play. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, like- if you, if, if you had Gwyneth Paltrow and Rose McGowan and it, all of them, playing the events of the that they're talking about i think that would have been too trippy that would have been that or it would yeah, recast them as younger people that would have been weird too um well it, it, i will say there was a lot of me on my phone being like wait that isn't actually rose mcgowan's voice is it wait that isn't actually you know what i mean um, yeah. so there was a little bit of that for me that just because of the period we're living through uh and with that information accessible it it did take me out a little bit uh because i just was constantly like sort of looking up oh okay that's a voice actor you know what i mean yeah yeah and i'm but, sure it was done with also, with like, consent how, for the most part yeah and but also you know like like you're talking about how do we do that in a way that doesn't feel like is just sort of name dropping and uh, you right. know, I, I, I think I, it was think really it, wise for the, for the movie to focus less on the starlets. Yeah. Um, although there were plenty of them that were victimized and, and focus more on these faceless, nameless people in Hollywood, these assistants, these secretaries, these well, and, and script, uh, yeah, and, yeah. Script doctors, things like that. Who all got caught up in the in uh, Harvey's world, and and they weren't given the platform of all of these uh, major actresses, who even they wouldn't come yeah. forward. But, you know, at one point we see Carrie Mulligan's character say something to the effect that she's being pitched the story after she had done some work on the 2016 Trump campaign when there were allegations coming against him. Um, and that kind of fell through the cracks. I mean, it's kind of wild how that all is just evaporated, but 
you know, so she doesn't want to get burned again. And so mm-hmm. she's, she, uh, Zoe Kazan's character is trying to like pitch her and she's saying, well, you know, why are we focusing on these, these famous women who already have a voice? And she then sees as she gets more and more involved in the story, all of these levels of people in the less glamorous uh, jobs in Hollywood that are were easier to manipulate because they're they're all looking for a leg up. Many of whom were so turned off from the entire experience that they leave Hollywood only yeah. to you know move back or live entirely different lives. Well, and I, I, a lot of them uh, were never even given the option to have a voice because they were NDA'd um, immediately. Well, and I, I think also, you know, speaking to the the people that are famous, you know, it's interesting to think of Gwyneth Paltrow being tied up in all this because she's one of the most powerful women right now. And even, you know, even her voice is taken away. You, you know what I mean? Like Ashley Judd comes out and speaks again very loudly against all of these things. Rose McGowan as well. And nobody listened. Yeah. Yeah. And their careers suffered for it. Yeah. You know, and and I think, I think one of the, the things that I appreciated about the movie is the way it portrayed the abuse by not dramatizing it, you know, by not showing these things by not, uh, I, I, again speaking to what you were just talking about about who it does and doesn't show i appreciate that it doesn't it doesn't give harvey weinstein uh an opportunity to dramatize or vocalize his part of the story i appreciate that it doesn't it doesn't delve into the salacious aspects more than it needs to right yeah, and everything in terms of who did what is is uh, told, you know, in this kind of interview sort of style. And um, if yeah, it, we just, if and when it is dramatized, it's done very subtly. Um, those that's the stuff that remind me a lot of Spotlight, mm-hmm. and and also sort of the the looks of the office and the uh, the yeah. It, it does sort of, sort of feel like this office is in 1979, even though it's right. like <laughs> two, you know, 2016. Yeah, everyone sort of like dressed down in like normcore kind of <laughs> uh, yeah. non-specific clothing. But uh, I mean, I think Zoe Kazan and Carrie Mulligan are both great in the movie. Yeah. Um, Mulligan especially, she's always been an actress I've enjoyed, and I think she – be it's, it's it's a really difficult role to play that mm-hmm. you know to just kind of be this headstrong facilitator of story yeah um i think kazan gets a little bit more room to make character choices and she she's playing it younger she's gets to be a little bit more of like the the bright bubbly optimistic one and Carrie Mulligan is kind of playing, a, you know, a little bit more world-weary world and a little bit more beaten down. And, mm-hmm. and but, you know, this isn't her first rodeo and she's here to kick ass and take names. She does that 
really well without without either of them coming off as like trying to be the embodiment of like the Rosie the Riveter. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and and again, not I, that there's I, anything wrong with that. I don't want to like put that out there as like you know as is that that's not something well, to aspire I, I to. The, but I th- type of narrativizing that I was glad they avoided. You know, the movie is aware of that and has to sort of approach it, the subject matter from that angle of, okay, how do we do this without alienating people? Like just the log line is going to make people uncomfortable. And it does that through character, through competent direction and through good storytelling. And, but framing them as people, uh, you know, who aren't, entangled in the subject matter personally but are personally affected by the systemic issues that are created by it and yeah and i i and also just portraying them as being professionals and good at their jobs yeah you know that's that's what they're there to do is they're they're i mean they're obviously invested in the outcome of the story and they become more emotionally entangled as they get deeper into it but but as um, an audience you're just as you you were I, I you know you're just as assured that they would be just as impassioned of if the story was was about the subject matter of spotlight or was you know they could have handled the uh uh the same subject matter as woodward and bernstein like they are treated as professionals and right in in a way that doesn't have to be like Look, they're women being professionals. Like that's just who these characters are. Yeah, I think the two tropes that we've we've seen a lot, especially recently, is like Hollywood celebrating itself and um, legacy journalism celebrating itself. <laughs> yeah, um, and both can come off as very obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this movie somehow is. Totally about both of those things and doesn't. I think it is the the competency of the filmmakers involved as well as probably an awareness of the issue. Of, right. You know, they have to work that much harder to not come across that way. You know, I think that shows. Yeah, and it probably would have been the easier choice to wait a little longer to tell this story like a decade maybe sure um when there's a little bit more room between current events to to what the story is telling and then you don't have to worry about those things as much but uh given the fact that they did choose to tell the story now and they did it the way they did it i think it's done about as well as you can hope and I yeah. ended up I w- I was a lot more invested in a story I knew pretty much all the ins and out of. I actually my again my wife Ashley wanted me to watch this. Um she was the one that suggested we watch it for the the podcast. I was a little hesitant because of all these things we've talked about. You know, it was like this isn't going to be a fun movie to watch. Um but it's done in a way that is compelling that is watchable that is once i got into the story i was i was 
captivated by it. You know, it was it, yeah. it's a good movie in that it let me as an audience member let my guard down and just watch it as a movie. Right. Yeah, it's a cinematic equivalent of a of a page turner. Yeah. You know, you're constantly it it knows how to keep up the momentum and play to the strengths of the the order of events in these characters and keep you involved in how to place the stakes and everything and it's it's uh very competently made and very well acted. Yeah. All right. Have you seen Open Your Eyes? Uh no. No, I have not. Okay. It's on Amazon or if you have access to it on your computer or wherever you watch. It's on Freebie. Yeah, what the fuck is Freebie? Isn't didn't like Amazon a, buy Freebie? Yeah, it if you're an Amazon subscriber, Amazon Prime subscriber, you already get it. But otherwise I think it you can access it through any smart TV or any kind of thing. It's just like Tubi or Pluto or any of those other ones that are popping up. But you're probably your best bet is to watch it through Amazon. But there there will be ads. Even with Prime. Okay. Open your eyes. Yes. Abre Las Ojos. That's the movie that was uh, remade into Vanilla Sky. That is the episode. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the subjects we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us at our social media on Twitter and Instagram. We are now on TikTok as well. So if you're on there, follow us at MacGuffinPod. Um, and you can slide into our DMs or send us a message via email letting us know if there's any other uh, movies or subjects you would like us to talk about for, in this segment for the streaming homework. If there's something streaming older that we didn't cover before that you wonder what we thought of, and if at least one of us haven't seen it, we'll fit it in. Um, be sure to follow me individually at VC Cassidy on Twitter and Instagram. You can read the reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or the Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment page. And uh, be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at the landing site, MacGuff.in. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also check out my uh, improv show if you're in the San Diego area. Um, come check out uh, Mockingbird Improv and uh, come see a show of improv versus stand up. Uh, you can follow both of those on social media at uh, Mockingbird Improv and uh, Improv versus Stand Up. And that is the episode. I wish to spend a season in hell where the interesting people are. <laughs> <laughs>